Good morning. You got me? Yeah, oh, there I am. Nope. You got me? Am I in there? Oh, there we are. Maybe. No? Yeah. I so really love fifth Sundays. That's what this is, if you're wondering. Uh, that's the fifth Sunday of the month, or the fifth weekend of the month. And one of the reasons I love it is because it, we do the membership thing, and I always love seeing new people join the cult. i uh, really, really excited about that, and I don't know why you're laughing. Uh, and you're going, I'd like to join the cult. And I'll just tell you, it's really, really simple. Uh, all you got to do, a couple things. You'd have to submit your W-2s, um, 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018 tax returns. But you're okay with that. You're supposed to keep the last seven years. And we will um, need a TB test. And um, I'm just joking. None of that's the case. Uh, and, but it is kind of neat to see folks kind of join in here. And here's, here's what I love about uh, covenant membership. Uh, it's this idea that it's you and I and God forever, right? And so the way that I like to think about it is we're, we're working towards the same things, which means we're partners in this, which means we're in this for, for always. That means if, if you go homeless, you can live in my basement. If I go homeless, I live in your basement. And we just are building a relationship. And the, the reality is um, that uh, the Bible says it this way in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. It says God looked at human beings. He started with Adam, and he looked when he was all by himself, and he literally says it's not good for man, meaning all mankind, humans, all women and men. It's not good for man man to be alone, and we just happen to really agree with that. And uh, so I want you to know up front today, while I'm joking about the Colts, definitely joking about um, W-2s and all that kind of stuff, I do want you to hear there is an agenda, and the agenda is we actually want you to uh, belong. I want you to be a part of this community, and we're working towards that end. We, part of us, we, we want to convince you that you should be in community, and we think this is a good place for you to do that. Even if you don't believe all this stuff yet, that's fine. You keep coming. You can, you can be cared for and loved long before you believe all this stuff uh, to be true, okay? So uh, I want you to know that's the agenda. That's the agenda always will be, that we really do want you to feel like you have some connection and community, and we will always be here for you, whatever that means or however that works. We are here for you, and um, we're trying to figure out how to create more space for more folks. And so last night was the second kind of preview service or dress rehearsal for Saturday night services. There's a good crowd, lots of fun. And this upcoming Saturday and Sunday kind of um, begins that process where we'll have three services in perpetuity indefinitely every single week. And a lot of that is because we want our, our community to have um, community, right? We want them to have connection. And we want us to be able to help people get connected and not be alone. And, but there is another side of this and just want to make sure you understand very clearly what the, what the purpose of Saturday nights are and Sundays. And here's what it is. Um, we are actually participating in uh, uh, the way that uh, God refers to it as, as the kingdom of heaven or uh, the kingdom of God. In fact, John the Baptist in the New Testament shows up and starts saying something like this, repent for the kingdom of God is near, meaning there's something about the kingdom of God that changes everything. When Jesus modeled prayer in the New Testament, he actually prayed, Our king, uh, your kingdom come, talking about God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there's this, there's this mandate and responsibility. For those of us who believe this stuff, who walk in faith, who believe Jesus is Lord, all those things, there is a mandate in the scriptures that we are to participate in bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. And Jesus actually clarifies that mission a little more clearly in this interaction he has with um, a guy who's just really broken, really alone, really isolated, had all the money, all the fame he could use, but didn't, had, was just empty and broken and um, disheartened. His name was Zacchaeus, and Jesus meets him and invites him into community and invites him into kind of an eternal relationship with him. And then at the end of kind of that uh, that moment where Jesus has this time with Zacchaeus, he makes this statement, and this is kind of how, how this fleshes out for us. He says, the Son of Man, that means the God of the universe in, in 
human form, right? The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost, right? And so there's this mandate for us to participate in the kingdom of heaven by seeking and saving that which was lost. So for the last several weeks, we've been kind of working through, okay, what does that mean? And, you know, we've been talking about it. It sounds a little offensive to talk about particularly your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, colleagues, you know, classmates, to say that they are lost. That seems really, really offensive, right? We don't like being lost. We don't even like admitting we're lost. And so let me give you some framework. I've been working through this for several weeks. Um, the first thing that I would just point out when Jesus says that uh, it's lost, that uh, when Jesus used the word lost, it, um, it indicates value, right? You don't say you lose your trash. You say you lose your keys, right? Because you don't care about your trash. If the trash disappears, you're going, oh, not a big deal, right? Even if it flies out the window. You don't want a litter, but you're not going to stop and turn around and go try to find that, you know, napkin. But if it's a $100 bill, maybe you are, right? If it's, a, you know, a, your marriage certificate, maybe you're going back after it, right? So there, there is this, like when we use the word lost, it always means that it's something that that you value, right? You lose your kids in the grocery store, right? You go look for them. And so that, that idea of loss just intrinsically means that, that the object of what is lost is very, very valuable. So in that piece, when Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost, what we understand as a result is that which is lost is very, very important to Jesus and therefore should be very, very important to us. Uh, so you got that piece, okay? Um, and then the, the, the second part of this, and we've really been working through this the last several weeks, is... Um, to be lost just means you're operating uh, without a map, or don't know how to read the map, or the wrong map, right? You got all this stuff. So just to be lost just means you're not going in the direction or heading towards a destination that is preferred, right? And so there is a preferred destination, and we can look at our world and go, man, the places that people are chasing after and things they're trying to achieve, right? Do you know, like, right now for 16 to 21-year-olds, or 14 to 21-year-olds, their number one goal in life is not to, uh, to be wealthy, not to like, get married, not to have things. Their number one goal in life right now, the majority, is fame. Fame is the, the new goal, to be famous, to be known. And then you look and go, oh, goodness, you know how messy it is to want to be famous, all the complications of all that stuff, and yet we live in a world where that's kind of the chief end is fame and we can acknowledge, for those of us who are adults in this, looking into it, going, ah, that's not a, that's not a very good map, right? That, that map doesn't, that, you know, end with a very good story, either because you don't get famous and you're devastated by it, or you do get famous and you're devastated by it, right? So we, we understand that, and so we're kind of working through kind of the map of our society as success, which means we're trying to achieve something or acquire something or obtain something. The problem with that is it has everything to do with our future, and even if you achieve or acquire or obtain it, you're left empty because it didn't fulfill you in the way that you thought it would, or you can achieve those things, and you're left defeated because you don't feel like you're adequate. And so either way, that map of success just ruins us. So I've been working through, okay, maybe there's a better map. Maybe it's not about the future. Maybe it's about the present. Kind of big idea over the last several weeks was um, God's will has nothing to do with our future, has everything to do with our present. Like God is interested in uh, the way that John Baptist says it, repent for the kingdom of God is near, meaning God is interested in you living in the kingdom and enjoying life today. Not somewhere in the future because you achieved, paid off the debt, got married, but today God is present for you and wants you to enjoy it. So that, that's a new map that Jesus wants to bring us, and that's why he says repent for the kingdom of God is near. But there's this other piece of um, being lost that we just kind of got to talk about, and we'll work through the rest, of, the rest of today, and it's this. Now, it's a little different in the last maybe 10 years because there's been kind of a tidal shift in terms of our views of deities. But for, throughout the history of the world, and I would say even for today, for the majority of us, there, um, throughout the history of the world, there has been this 
kind of understanding or belief that there's two different realms at play. There's the natural world, right? You see it, you feel it, all your senses, smell, touch, taste, all those things. The natural world of all the things that you experience in this world, right? There's this natural world that we all kind of understand. We all, none of us disagree with that. There's a natural world, and most of us would agree, that there's a natural world that we sit in and live in. And now, and there is this belief, a thought, that there's also another realm that's out there, this spiritual realm. And uh, we kind of have to come to these conclusions and believe that's a possibility for things like love, right? You can't inject someone with a pill and make them love, right? You can't give them something and help them to all of a sudden love. There's something about love that doesn't live in our natural world, right? There's not, you, don't, you don't work out more and get love. There's this whole other side of feelings and emotions, like sadness. Where does that come from? Now, we're trying to figure out how to get rid of those things with stuff, right? But there's this, there's this whole other realm of feelings that perhaps, and most, most uh, philosophers throughout the ages would point to, and different realm. We'll call it, you know, for lack of a better term, and I think it's a pretty specific one, is a spiritual realm. So you got this, this natural world we live in, and then kind of at play, most of us would agree, most of us would agree, not all of us, but most of us uh, would agree that there's an, another realm, a spiritual world that kind of um, pervades. And maybe you use words like karma, or the universe, or, you know, like just those, those things out there. And so a lot of us, a lot of us, um, look outside of our life for those things, right? Maybe it's something up there that we can find. Maybe it's the universe. Maybe it's the sun. Maybe it's one with nature, whatever it is. So there's a spiritual realm that the majority of people, um, even in the agnostic camp, meaning I don't know, but this just seems to be more than just the natural sense, right? The majority of people are looking for that either by looking outside of us you know, for those things or the, the, the really um, in vogue thing right now is to stop looking outside, but to look inside of us. Like if we can look deep down inside of us, maybe we can find our own personal God or be one with ourselves or empty of us of any pain or sorrow. So we've got these two different realms of going, okay, if there's a, a spiritual world, if there's another world beyond just what's physical, I've got to figure out why I love, I've got to figure out why I hate, I've got to figure out why i got pain. If it's not a natural thing, then it must be some supernatural spiritual thing. So how do we find that? And so um, for the majority of history, majority of history, uh, people have been trying to figure out how in the world do they fully access that realm. So if you're a Christian, got to figure that out. How do we access a deity, God? If you're not a Christian, you're going, okay, if you want to be enlightened, whatever the term you want to use, there's this belief that there is some way, there's some kind of journey we're on to kind of find that, that supernatural, that spiritual realm. And so everybody's kind of a seeker in this. And even like if you're an atheist, so, so you're, you're going, well, none of that's the case. There's just, there's just, science and bones and material, right? I don't believe any of the deity stuff, but then you've got to at least wrestle with, okay, why do you love? And why do you love some people and not other people? Like, where does love come from? How about this one? Where does sadness come from? If it's all just, if we're just all a bag of chemicals and flesh, then why do we, why do we cry? Like, why do those tears come out? It's not because of something, maybe it's because you had a feeling pain, but like, maybe because you stumped your toe. But the sadness and the grief you have, where does that come from? That there's some kind of realm out there that we got to deal with. And even as an atheist, if, we, if you live in that camp, which is fine, glad you're here. Even we go, no, no, it's all natural. It just kind of all started with these things that kind of bumped together. And then from there, it became this progression of more and more things kind of evolving into now here we are at life. And then you still have to come up with, okay, before those physical things, what was? Like, how did those physical things get created? So there's just, even, even in that camp, there was, this, there was something and there was nothing. And the best plausible explanation is that was something greater, spiritual, supernatural, long before we got here. So uh, the good news is today we're going to spend a good bit of time 
figuring out how to access that realm, right? How do you get access to the spiritual? How, where does that come from? How do we get that? And we're going to be looking at the scriptures. And so this is going to, we're going to, we're going to cover a lot of ground today, like thousands of years of Bible history and human history. We're just going to cover it all. But I'll talk really, really fast, so we'll get through it good, okay? So I'm going to cover it all. And then uh, next week, next week, we start a new series, and this is intentional because your TV shows are back. You know that? Like, you're all excited because your TV shows are back. And you're like, hey, my shows are back. You're so excited. You're sitting at home and you're excited about the TV. And um, there's a reason your TV shows are back. The fall just started. And um, someone, lots of someone, spent a lot of money trying to figure out your routines and figuring out when you would stop going to the beach, right? Or figure out when you were going to get settled and actually be in your home at night and at your house on the weekends, right? So there's been a lot of time and energy spent by lots of networks trying to figure out that. And they have identified as soon as fall starts, that happens, which means our schedules are getting a little bit more um, consistent. School started, and so now you can watch your TV shows and kind of understand that as a church and realize that this is a, a pretty specific time when people's schedules get back that they would actually— consider coming to church, right? Their schedules are back. And so that's uh, why we wanted to launch the Saturday night service uh, the first week in October, because our schedules are back. And so what we're going to talk about today, the reality is um, we really do kind of think next week's a week that uh, people will be really willing to come to church. Really good time to, for you to invite your friends, neighbors, co-workers on Saturday at 5, Sunday at 9, or 1045. I think it'd be really, really important. So this week, I'm going to give you a big picture. Hopefully, you get some real confidence in God and his Bible and what he's doing. And next week, we're going to kind of, to macro level, high level, next week, we're going to really, really narrow it down and kind of help us understand the difference between Christianity and every other worldview out there, every other worldview. So really, really be important. What we're going to look at next eight weeks, starting next week, is a new series called Jesus Creed. And so familiar with, uh, you know, kind of Christian history, we have all these creeds. We've got the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. These are different things where people got together at a certain time and came up with their core beliefs that they just all held to and kind of held up as their, their understanding and their worldview, right? And so people got together and understood the scriptures and, and kind of focused on those. But the neat thing about that is if, if you really, really dive down into it, all those things kind of start with a creed that Jesus makes, that uh, there's actually a pretty simple understanding that we understand that we should love our Lord, our God, with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. And so next three weeks, you're going to be looking at kind of how that kind of plays out in the, the Christianity. So next week, you'll get to see a lot about Jesus. Really, really bring your friends, invite them, and then uh, the next two weeks, we'll look at some other understanding of how that plays out in, in terms of how we can trust that and, and be confident of it. Then the following five weeks, we'll actually be looking at case studies throughout the New Testament where Jesus kind of reveals this and kind of leads people. So really worth your time. We get to cover a lot of ground. But right now, uh, where we've been for the last eight, uh, no, no, I'm sorry, last four months, so 16, 17, 18 weeks, um, has been uh, starting in the beginning of the Bible. So we've started in Genesis and worked through literally the first two books of the Bible. There's 66 books at, at all, and so we've been working through the first two books. And so if you're not familiar with the Bible, um, here's, here's what I want you to understand um, at, a, at a really simplistic or general level. Um, the Bible is not like a how-to manual. Right, and a lot of people go, "Well, this is like a, a how-to manual. If I read it, then I, you know, then I do those things, and life's better." There, I mean, I would agree with that. That's uh, beneficial. I would argue that never have I ever regretted following what the Bible says. Right, but at its base, it's not a, a how-to manual. It's not a checklist. It's not a history book. That's not what it is. It is not a science book. That's not what it is. So that while there's history and science and um, commands in it. At its core, it is not any of those things, right? At its core, the Bible, written over 15, 600 years by dozens of authors, the Bible is basically God revealing his heart to his people, 
right? So the Bible, if you read it all together, which we're not going to do today, we're not going to read it all, right? We're going to cover a good bit of ground. But if you look at the whole thing together, it is God revealing his heart and his love for his people. And um, he is demanding and asking and requiring our focus and attention to go back to him as the, the creator and the author of all life. So it's a, it's a love story about God and his people. So um, the way that we're going to explain it today, if you imagine, if you've been in a relationship, all of us have or many of us have, and you know how in a relationship, maybe, maybe you've, you're more guarded now, but at some point in your life you probably weren't as guarded and you just made yourself fully available to whoever that person is. And uh, now many of you have regrets about making yourself that available, right? Like you just were vulnerable with them. You shared all of you with them, whatever that is, maybe in an inappropriate way, maybe in a, you know, in a, um, not so much, but there you have probably, a lot of us have these memories, I definitely do, of being so connected and so in love and so trustworthy of someone and basically handing them my heart, right? You hand them your heart and um, then in the middle of you handing them heart, they just destroyed it right, and just destroyed it, and you know, the pain that comes with that. Now, imagine you did that within the confines of uh, marriage, and I hope this doesn't trigger anything. There's definitely no, no point in this for this room, not sharing this, because I think it's in here. Just think you can understand it. Um, imagine that you were in a, an abusive relationship with a spouse who, I don't know, physically, verbally, mentally, emotionally, whatever, um, offered some abuse to you, and you still love them, and that gets really, really complicated. Why I think counseling is a, a, much, a very beneficial thing, why we really support the New London Counseling Centers. Um, uh, it requires licensed counselors to kind of navigate that. It's a lot more than just pray it away or whatever those things are, and so, um, but when you are in that kind of relationship, and you're torn between two things, well, I want to stay committed to the relationship. This is covenant. This means there are no stipulations, and yet I am in so much pain, and I can't trust that they can handle and deal with my heart appropriately, right? And so uh, what, what you kind of are coached on and, and how you would operate then is that you would, you would kind of, um, you kind of pull your heart back and be responsible for it. The scriptures say, for all else, guard your heart for the wellspring of your life. And so you would, you would still want to love your spouse, still want to love that person, and yet you would be clear that there's some boundaries that are now defined as a result of the, the damaged relationship. The, I can't trust you with this. I can't do this with you. No, I'm here. I love you unconditionally, but there are parts of me that I can't make available to you. You follow me? So there's, this, there's now a new way by which that relationship works. Well, if you read the scriptures, in the very beginning, God create humans, right? Then you go, why in the world would he do that? We get some pretty good understanding. Um, the Bible tells us there's a triune God that's really complicated, but really, really important to understand that there, before we existed in that spiritual world, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they existed, existed. Now you go, I don't understand how to believe that. Well, I don't know what else you can believe that's e- any easier to understand, okay? So I understand it's hard to, un- to conceive, but I don't, there's, there's nothing else that's easier to, to consider. And so what we understand about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is they were in a perfect, perfect relationship with perfect community, with perfect respect for one another, with perfect honor, and there was infinite amounts of connection and love out of them. To the point where, remember, if you have excess, if you ever have excess of something, your options are either throw it away or make it available to other people, right? That's just kind of the options with it, and that's why you see big free signs of stuff all on all of our curbs all over the place, right? Because we're hoping the Amish folks can use it because we don't want to throw it away, but it's excess for us, you know? And so you got this kind of world where you got these extra things, and so in the beginning, God had perfect love, perfect connection with the triune God, and so what he does in a beautiful way is he creates vessels by which they can receive that love and connection and community. That's humans, 
right? And you go, well, why did he do that? Did he have to? Well, he had all this excess. He might as well. And we get a pretty good understanding as we start being parents that this God does it the same way we do it because uh, we have kids, not because we thought life was going to be easier with them, but because we wanted to be in a relationship. We wanted to have connection. And, and so we did the same thing. And so we see in the very beginning that God creates humans and his heart is fully available to them, fully available. And then there's these moments where God's going, you can trust me. Here's my heart. I am perfect and I'm loving and I'm good. And Genesis chapter 2 tells us that God was in the garden with them. This presence was fully available. And then there's some bad things that happen where human beings, particularly Adam and Eve in this part, now we've done the same thing to God as well, where they've said, we like our plan better than yours, God. We don't trust you. And they literally turned their back on God. And it broke his heart. Broke his heart. The God of the universe with, uh, creates these humans and loves them. And they look at him and go, we are more interested in ourselves. We're more interested in our own love. We're more interested in what we can acquire and obtain than we are you. And there becomes this, this heartbreak in the scriptures. And so at the very beginning, we see that God makes his heart available and it gets crushed. No, God's not codependent. God's not enabling. He's not needy. He's like, I need them to love me. But he is so gracious and so kind. The same way you would be with your children. That he, from that point on, from the beginning of Genesis all the way to Revelation, God does this crazy supernatural work to bring his kids back to him. And as he does it, he does all the work. And as he does it, over and over and over again, his children, the human race, continues to turn their back and continues to break God's heart. And so what you see happen in the beginning of Genesis is that there's this moment where God puts a veil up, a separation between his heart and his children's heart. And so throughout the scriptures, there's this thing that happens and it goes, God, do you love us? Are you going to speak to us? Are we going to have access to that again? And throughout the history and throughout the scriptures, God continues to give a little bit of his heart available, the same way in a relationship that you'd be coached to do that in terms of boundaries, to make themselves a little bit more vulnerable. And over and over again throughout the scriptures, what you see is people take advantage of God and, and, and break his heart some more. So there's this weird thing that God creates this human race. And um, from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and then from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 11, over and over again, people just like us go, we like our plan better than yours, God. And they stopped loving God and started using God. They started saying, God, we don't want you. We just want you to, to, to perform stuff for us. We want you to give us food. We want you to give us light. We want you to do all these things. We're not interested in you. We just want to live in your house right? We want nothing to do with you. We don't want to talk over dinner. We just want you to pay for our phones, right? This is this broken relationship where the people just basically go, God, we're not interested. And, and then some things would happen and they'd go, okay, now we need you, God. And so they'd perform a certain way and God would love them because God is loving. And then they turn their backs on again, same way that we have broken relationships. And so for the first 11 chapters of the Bible, you see this over and over again where um, the human race just is doing horrific things to the point where they're murdering each other and killing each other and their selfishness and their pride is just doing massive destruction. And what becomes really evident really on in the scriptures, in the Bible, is that the human race is not going to be able to fix itself. It's not. It's not going to be able to fix itself. And no, we don't like to think that way, but the reality is, if we're really, really honest, and this is what I love about the, the church, if we're really, really honest, there are so many things about our own selves that we try to fix over and over again, so things about our own marriages that we try to fix over and over again, and finally, hopefully, if we, if we have some emotional intelligence, we come to the same conclusion that we can't fix ourselves either. So Genesis 1 through 11 are the story after story after story of people proving that they cannot fix themselves. And then all of a sudden, in Genesis chapter 12, everything changes. God goes, you can't do it. You need to understand that you're not capable of fixing yourself. You can't build a tower or a ladder tall enough to get back to me, get back to my heart. The only way this can happen is if I do all the work. And so God is going to now play out this crazy 
what I would even argue desperate act, not because he's needy, but because he's so in love with his kids, that it seems irresponsible and um, comprehensible what God is going to do. And he's going to take this people group. And starting with this guy named Abram, he's going to let me show you how this plays out. Let me give you a case study of people who are going to continue to mess things up and continue to mess things up. And they continue to turn their backs on, him, on me. But throughout the history, what you're going to see through this people group is that I am always going to be faithful. So God says something in Genesis chapter 12 that's amazing. He says, I'm going to bless you so that you'll be a blessing. And he says that he'll be in a covenant relationship with us. This is really, really important because that covenant changes everything because it means God's, God's going to do what God's going to do regardless of our behavior. God is always going to keep his promises. And so God makes this declaration to go, even though humans are going to mess it up, I am going to be a good God and I am going to save my children. I'm going to bring them back to me. And one day, one day, one day, we're going to be back in that right relationship. And one day, one day, my heart's going to be fully back available to them, but not yet. And so he's going to show them this progress through Abram, Abraham and then his family. And then through his family becomes this nation called Israel. Still familiar with Israel. And the Israelites are these people that God are going, let me show you how this works. These are people that are going to continue to turn their back on me. And I'm going to continue to keep my covenant. These are people that are going to continue to, to, to choose their own plans. I'm going to continue to draw them back. And so this, this is broken roller coaster relationship. And what we understand about the relationship is God is doing all the fixing all the time. People keep messing it up and God keeps fixing it. That's the whole story of Genesis. Finally, at the end of Genesis, we see this really beautiful story where the Israelites um, are, are, are living in a new land, Egypt, but they have good things. God has been a good God. He has blessed them. And he makes this proclamation that what the enemy, what you, he calls them the enemy, what you meant for harm, God says, I still use for good to save your many lives. So we saw this, this story of what we've called providence, that God is always bending and shaping all things for our good and his glory. So we end Genesis with finally things are good, not because humans did anything that was worth redeeming, but because God did, right? And so then in Exodus, we find them hundreds of years, four or five hundred years later, three, four, five hundred years later, in this place of enslavement. They go, God, we got it from here. And what happens? They end up back in the pit, back in slavery, the same roller coaster of a story over and over again. And then Exodus chapter 1 through 18, we looked at seven weeks ago, was this story of these folks being enslaved. And there was a very clear picture of what the oppressor or the enemy looked like. His name was Pharaoh. He was over Egypt. And he did not want the Israelites to have any power. So what he started to do is killing all the firstborn boys. And so God, because God is redeemer, God always keeps his promises, does these crazy supernatural events, Exodus 1 through 18, where he literally uh, does these things that he has to get credit at, all these plagues, and so that he can free, not because the Israelites do it right, but because God does, so that he can free his children from bondage and slavery. Now, the, the apex of all that stuff is this moment where God, it's called this Passover, where God literally wipes out the firstborn of all Egypt. But in it, basically, he says, hey, Israelites, if you trust me, and by the way, Egyptians, if you trust me as well, what I want you to do is I want you to acknowledge that there are consequences for your sin. There are consequences for this. And the consequence of sin is death. Stay with me there. We'll get back to that later. And shed blood. And so what I want you to do is I want you to take your best animal and I want you to slaughter it. And I want you to say, God, I'm greater than that. And I understand that my behavior caused death and this innocent lamb is the thing that has to die. And so uh, and if you take the blood, put it over the doorpost, then I will pass over you. And in this moment, there's this freedom because God does all the work. They just obey and then they get freed out of, out of Egypt. And that kind of the last part of this story in Exodus chapter 18 is they're running across, they come up to this Red Sea, this unbreakable barrier, right? That all of a sudden God opens up the Red Sea, they cross over in dry land, and then literally in this beautiful and horrific, sad picture, as they, as they, break through, as they get through, the entire Egyptian army chase after them, and they get washed up into the sea. 
So now we have them in Exodus chapter 19, and they're in a new land. And they're going, finally, we can know God and be with God. And they had this idea of what that would be like. God would be a really good genie in a bottle and give them all sorts of fancy stuff. But when they get there, what they realize is God, um, he's there. But they can't quite see him. They can't quite experience him in the way that they want to. But, and they didn't, they're still not sure if he's good. And they're going, God, are you good? Are you available? And God starts providing for them. And he gives them food. They don't have to work for it. And they start whining about it. You know what this is like, right? You know when you work really hard to cook a meal and your kid goes and takes, won't even take a bite, you know what I'm talking about, and just slides it out, you know, like just that little B-R-A-T, right? And so, you know, not eating the food. Well, this is kind of what the Israelites do. God, you're so good. Thanks for saving us, but we don't like the food you make us. Give us something better, right? And so God literally pours down bread. It's raining bread. Hallelujah. It's raining bread, right? And so um, it's, it's raining it, right? And, and so there's all this bread, uh, and they're complaining about it. And they're like, but we're thirsty too. You know, like when you get the popcorn in the movie theater, we're thirsty. And so God gives them clean, filtered water. And so they have all this stuff, but they're not looking toward God and telling God he's so good. They're, they're grumbling about it and complaining. And they're like, we want to know God better. Will God please come through for us? Would he speak to us? Would he give us his presence? And so this really neat things happens that God takes the leader of the army, Moses, and says, hey, Moses, um, I, why don't you tell the people that if they're ready for my presence, they're ready to experience my heart, they're ready for my words, I'll do them. I'll give them those. But there's one caveat. They have to obey. So Moses comes before the people and goes, God wants to show back up here. He wants to make himself available. And he wants to, he wants to speak to you. He wants to give you his words. But if he's going to give you these words, it's because he's designed life in a better way than you understand. It. And the, the, the requirement, the expectation is you would follow what it is he says. And guess what all the Israelites say? Absolutely. We'll follow all of it. We'll follow it perfectly. It's Exodus 19.8. He goes, we'll do everything right. So... God I, tells Moses to ascend up into a mountain, Mount Sinai. And again, this sounds like folklore, myth, legend, but this is a true story. And God and Moses are having this conversation. Now, as we saw last week in Exodus, Exodus 32 and 30, uh, Exodus 30 through 32, there's, while, while Moses is up there, the Israelites immediately get distracted. They go, 40 days, we can't wait. They don't know how long it's going to be for Moses to do. And so immediately, even before they get these rules or laws, they turn their back on God and start worshiping gold cows. You can go back and listen to last week's sermon. So literally, there's just this arrogance. that They'll go, we'll do it, we'll do it, we'll do it. And then in the middle of, while they're getting this, these words, they don't do it. Now, what we see in the next part of the scriptures is God gives Moses um, the, what we call the Ten Commandments. And so you got Exodus chapters 19 through, uh, I mean, 20 through, 20, 20 through 23, and that's where we get the Ten Commandments. And then there's 52 other laws in there that have to do with how you worship God and how you deal with social justice, really, really some important stuff there. So lots and lots of rules that God wants people to follow because it, it's a better design, but that's still not the the ultimate reason that he gives us the rules, right? The number one reason he gave us the rules, you can go back and listen to last week's sermon, is that, um, that uh, he wanted us to understand that we weren't good at following the rules. He wanted us to give us awareness that we really do need a Savior. We cannot fix ourselves. And so they're, they're proving that point while they're waiting for it, but Moses is taking down all these rules. So the first part you get is all the revelation, all the laws. How, how do you behave? But then something interesting happens in the next part, um, and it's like starting in 24 and 25, God is not only going to give them a bunch of rules, he's going to say, here's what my house can look like. Hey, I'm going to dwell with you. So then he starts describing this temporary dwelling place by which God 
and his heart can reside with his people. So that's what referred to in the Old Testament. It's called the tabernacle. Eventually the tabernacle becomes a permanent place later in Jewish history through Solomon. That's the temple, but it's the same thing where God is saying, I'm going to make myself available to his people. And he's saying, we're going to build a house that I'm going to dwell in. It's going to be a, it's going to be a nomadic, t- temporary place that you can put up every place you go. And so God then tells them what that's going to look like. This is Exodus chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. Here's what it says. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You would receive this offering from me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are their offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, right? Uh, Ramskins dyed red and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant, fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. Then have them make a sanctuary, sorry for that, uh, for me, and I will, notice this, dwell among them, make this tabernacle, really important word, and all of its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So God goes, okay, remember how you took the stuff with you when you left Egypt, they gave it to you? Now I want you to start using that. Be good stewards of the stuff that I gave you. And the first thing we're going to start with is we're going to create a dwelling place. I want you to participate in this. I want you to have some ownership in bringing the kingdom here. I want you to participate. So bring the stuff and I want you to build this tabernacle, okay? So then he's going to describe the tabernacle over the next couple of chapters. And there's a couple things to understand. The tabernacle was this this space that um, had, had multiple kind of parts of it. Don't have time to cover them all, but there's kind of this, this outer place with this big fence around it or, you know, uh, yeah, some kind of petitions around it. And then inside, as soon as you were to walk in, there'd be this massive, what was called the altar of sacrifice. It was seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet by four and a half feet tall, this huge, massive things. There were big bullhorns on each side of it, right? And uh, that was a place where people would make sacrifices. They would, they would sacrifice, not humans, not any of that kind of stuff, but animals, and they would go, God, you're greater than our greatest sacrifice. And there's a reason for that. As God is describing this tabernacle, you're going to go through and you're going to see the outer courts where there's this big thing, and then you're going to get to another tent that's inside of it, okay? Kind of a big tent. And inside the tent, there are two different spots. When you first walked in, there was this there's another altar of incense that you would, you would actually create, give some burnt offerings, and you would smell in the fragrance and receive the forgiveness. Like you would allow that fragrance to actually come in and fill your life, right? And then there's this huge veil, this huge veil. And on the other side, that's where God resided. Remember, God is going, I love my children. I'm not going where, but my heart is guarded, right? There are boundaries of this. And so there's this big kind of veil or curtain that they could not get access to God. In fact, only once a year could anyone go into that. And that's actually something called Yom Kippur. Um, this, actually, next week, October 5th, 6th, something around there. With the, and, and, and Jewish culture, there's this, this, the holiest of holy priests, and so he could go in and he would what would be called intercede on behalf of God's people. And they go, God, we know, we know this is a temporary solution. We know this doesn't fix anything, but we know we can give sacrifices. We know that there's a consequence for sin and we know you're greater than those things. Would you please, please, for one more year, would you please, please forgive your people? So there was this place. So they knew God was there. They knew that he was around, but they could not access him. Now, the interesting thing about is, as Moses is getting all this, these directions in the scriptures for what this place is supposed to look like, um, these really neat um, 
this neat sim, these neat symbols show up, uh, like stuff like flowers and fruit and water and trees. And um, the Israelites understood what those things meant. They understood that those things were a direct reflection of what the Garden of Eden was like thousands of years before. Okay? So the Garden of Eden was this place that things are perfect between God and his people, Exodus, or Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And then when um, Adam and Eve turn their back on God, the way that that plays out is God says, hey, enjoy everything. But you've got to obey, guys. You've got to obey because your life is better when you obey. You've got to see that I am trustworthy and I'm good. You can do, enjoy everything. It's all yours except for that one thing, the fruit. Just like the Ten Commandments. Hey, let me help you understand that you're going to want the one thing you shouldn't want. To know that you need salvation. Know that you can't save yourself. And what we find, know in scriptures is that Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit. Now, immediately what it says is that they realized that they were naked and felt shame. So as Moses is getting this and sharing this with Israelites, they would have known the story and had an understanding of the Garden of Eden. So if you don't know that story, what happens, Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit, they look down, and it says they, um, they realize they're naked for the first time. Before that wasn't a problem, there was no shame. Really some interesting things to think about that in terms of how we still hate bathing suit season. There's just something about what our bodies do to us in terms of shame, right? So Adam and Eve, they, um, they, they realize they're naked and they hide. And so God comes out and he offers some consequences, lots of consequences, including death, by the way, which I just offer. I mean, I don't, do you have any other reason why we die? Like, why in the world do we have this neat evolution of things, but everything has to die? Like, why, why shouldn't we live forever? Like, if, in a scientific sense, shouldn't we be able to figure that out? Why is death still always looming? And I'd go, since the garden, that's been the consequence. So God says there are going to be consequences for your sin. One is going to be disconnection for me. He's going to remove his heart from his people. But Adam and Eve are just standing there in shame and pain, and they're naked. And so we see something so beautiful and so gracious of God. He's going to go, nope, I'm going to take my heart, but I'm going to still love you, and here's what I'm going to do. And so what God does there is he takes an innocent animal through the garden, and he slays it. He slaughters an innocent animal. The animal did nothing wrong, guys, nothing. And then he's going to take that animal's skin, the leather, and he's going to fashion clothes for Adam and Eve. Literally, he's given them a picture of what it looks like to have a a temporary solution to cover their shame, right? A literal temporary solution. And so you see the first sacrifice in the Bible as a result of people's sin, and Adam and Eve literally wear the clothes. The animal died, right? And so as they would have understood that, they would have understood that it was the same picture of, God, we need something to cover our shame. And so when they would walk into this big sacrifice, this, you know, the, the altar sacrifice, they would have understood that there is something that's to cover our sin and shame. And from the very beginning, that's been a sacrifice of shed blood. So they would have completely understand the need for a sacrifice to be able to have access to God heart, God's heart. They're going, okay, God, we know that we haven't done right. We know that there are some, there's some, some things we have to do, like you would have to do in a bad relationship, to, to earn back some favor, to show that you're committed, to show that, that you're invested in trying to repair the relationship. Hey, God, we're going to invest in trying to repair the relationship because we want your heart, and here's what we do. There's this sacrifice. And so, I, don't, I mean, Moses would have gotten all that information, been prepared for it, and then he's coming back down the mountain, and this is when all the stuff goes down with idolatry. Moses gets angry. He throws down God's word, and he's like, oh, I guess I'm going to have to go back and get another one. So this is what happens next. Moses goes back up the mountain after knowing this stuff. So he knows it all. They haven't gotten prepared it yet. And this is Exodus chapter 34, beginning in verse 4. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones. It says that God wrote the first ones. This is pretty funny because now Moses has to write them. You know, it's like having to write on the, back, on the blackboard. I will never break the tablets. I will never break the tablets. Right? And went up. Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Now watch this. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name. So finally they get God's presence, but it's veiled in the cloud, right? So throughout the Old Testament, you're going to see a couple different places that God's cloud is going to be there. That is a, 
That's a symbol of God's presence. Okay, you can't quite access it, but you know it's there. You're also going to see fire. When you see that in the Old Testament, that's a symbol of God's direction and his power, right? And so the, the, the cloud would be there by day, and by night it would move by fire, so they would pack up everything and go to the next place, right? And so this cloud came down, um, and this is what happens. This is really, really neat. And finally, in Exodus chapter 34, verse 10, God tells you about himself. We don't know anything about God's character at this point. We don't know what he's done. We, we don't understand any of that kind of stuff. And so far, we've seen that the God will fight for us. We've seen that we only need to be still. We've seen that God tells us that his, that his name is Yahweh, meaning I am that I am, meaning I'm self-sustaining. I always was. But now he's going to give you some adjectives to understand who he is. And now watch what he says here. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. There's that term, right? That means without stipulation, he's going to do what he says he's going to do. For all your people, I will wonder... I do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. Now, remember, this is right after they just turned their back on him. This is right after they've done all the wrong stuff, and God's going, I'm still going to do all the right stuff. Uh, the people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. So they're going to be in all of who I am and be in all of all my covenants. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming. Here it is. Here's, here's his, here's his um, character. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. She says, let me tell you who I am. I am a God who forgives. I am a God who is merciful. I am a God who is all-loving and all-gracious, and I will blot out your sins. I will not make you pay the price for them. And they're going, wait, 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 wait. But you just created this whole temple, and you're saying things have to die. You're saying things have to die, but you're saying that I'm going to be forgiven. So do I just have to keep doing this? Like, I keep hearing about this eternal God. Does that mean every single day I'm slaughtering stuff before you? Okay, God, what is it? So you're saying that you're loving and you're forgiving and, oh, that's good. Does that make God codependent? Does that make him an enabler? Because he's going, no, 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 I'll just forgive you. And you're going, that's not a very just God. I want my judge to be just. So this guy's all loving, but watch this. So he talks about all of his goodness and all of his love and all of his graciousness and all of his mercy. So he's got that hat. And then he's not going to take off the hat. He's going to now pick up another hat, and he's going to put it on. Now watch this. Yet he, it's talking about himself in third person, which is awesome. God is allowed to do that. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and the children of, and their children for their sin of the parents, the third and fourth generation. So God is literally standing in both camps. He's going, on one end, I am loving and I'm gracious and I'm good. On the other camp, I am going to pour out my wrath. These people have been wicked. They've been stiff-necked. They have turned their back, and they have done damage after damage after damage. Not just in defiance to God, but to God's children, right? So you, if someone hurt your child, I'm talking about molested, did something horrific, you wouldn't go, oh, it's okay, that's fine, it's okay, just keep living, right? There would be an anger and a wrath at the damage that was done to your child. And you'd go, somebody should pay for this, right? There's, there's this side of going, I want, I, I want you to feel loved and cared for, but there are ramifications for your sin. And so God is looking at people and going, I can't just turn my back on what you've done to my children. You have raped and pillaged my people, right? So you got this God who's loving and gracious and willing to do all stuff. And you're going, no, no, no. You got to trust that I am a holy and perfect God. So there's this, this weird tension and God demands both sides and declares it right there. So they're going, okay, um, so we, we get your presence, but in a veiled sense, we got to make sacrifices. But uh, God, does that mean at some point we're all just going to be destroyed? So imagine how Moses receives that. And he responds, watch how he responds. He goes, oh, Moses bowed down at once and worshiped God, right? So he's just worshiping going, God, you, I deserve to die. I deserve that I get that. I get that, God, I understand. I am wicked. We are wicked. The Ten Commandments have convinced me I'm wicked. Uh, my own behaviors convinced me I'm wicked. I'm wicked, I'm wicked, right? And he says, Lord, 
He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Oh God, I understand I deserve that, but could we have your presence, please? Although this is a stick nef- stick net, or stiff-necked people, man, they are defiant and rude. God, would you please forgive our wickedness and our sin? And would you take us as your inheritance? Oh God, 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 I understand you're saying both sides, but can we get on side A? Like, can we be on side A, not side B? Can we not receive the, all the punishment we deserve? Can you let us endure A, which is your grace and your love, and not door B, which is your wrath and weeping and gnashing of teeth? So Moses is going, we want your favor, God. And I just, be honest with you, I want that for all of us. And it's accessible for all of us. This is that realm we're talking about. And this is what God says. Obey what I command you. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. So those are like the, the literal people that are storming on their doors. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you're going or they will snare among you. So don't do any scheming. Don't do any scheming. Don't try to fix this yourself. Don't try to protect yourself. Don't do those things. Uh, break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Watch this. Do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. So he's going, okay, here's the thing, guys. You've got to understand this. There are, there are two doors that you can access. There's one that, that sees my might and my power and my love and my grace, and you see me and me alone as Lord. Or you can turn your back on this, and you can do all the things you want to, behave the way you want to, but you are worshiping false idols, and you will be destroyed, right? We learned last week that there are only two, key, there are only two types of people, those who live in and participate and point to God's kingdom and those who stand in defiance of it. And God is going, no one else deserves this glory. No one else is good. No one else gets credit, guys. We cannot give credit to any thing else. Not your self-help books, not your good stuff, not any of those other things that tell you how you can access some supernatural spiritual realm. None of that is true, and none of that gets credit, and we got to destroy all those things, because I alone am God. And so he tells us to Moses, and Moses is starting to clean house. And so at this point, Exodus 35 through 40, they build the entire, the entire tabernacle. So they get to work, and they build it. So you would think, okay, finally, they're going to get access to God. Someone's going to be able to get in there and get to God, and they're going to have this whole thing, and they're all ready. The cloud showing God's presence is sitting up there. The fire's coming up, and they know that God, you know, like in a figurative sense, is dwelling in there. They can't quite get to him. And so what happens at the end of Exodus 40 is Moses wants to go in and finally connect to God. And he can't get in. He can't get in. So all this work, all this stuff, and Moses, the greatest human being to live at this point, the, the godliest human being cannot have access to God. And so all these people are going, we thought we were getting God's presence. We thought he was going to be so gracious to us. And the greatest of us can't even behave well enough to get in on his own. So what do we do? So this is messy because the entire Israelite people, it started in Exodus chapter 1 through 18 where they point and blame Pharaoh. Pharaoh did it. He's keeping us from God. Then they get to Exodus 40 and finally they're going, this isn't Pharaoh's fault. Even the greatest of the great can't get in. And so what do we do? So what's going to happen throughout human history from this point throughout the whole Old Testament is the Israelites are going to beg for God to come through and he's going to continue to give them his protection and he's going to continue to give them his provision. He's going to be so gracious. But they're always going to wonder, they're not going to have full access to God. They're always going to wonder, does God really love them? Is he really going to make all things right? And in the back of their mind, they're going, are we going to get hit with a hammer? Are we going to be loved into heaven? Like, which one is it? And so they're going to start asking God for things. God, would you help us understand your laws better? Give us judges. God, 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 would you, other nations have kings. Maybe it's a king we need to do right and get right. And so they're going to ask for kings, and sometimes it's going to go really well. They're going to get kings like David and then Solomon, and they're going to build this beautiful temple, hoping that would get them access to God. And they still don't have full access. He's still veiled. They get his heart, but just only a part of it. 
And they're going to go, God, we don't know. Would you speak to us? And God is going to provide these prophets. And they're going to come in and tell them, remind them that God loves them, but he is a patient God. And he is long-suffering, but they should repent and turn back to him. So you're going to see throughout the Old Testament, all of a sudden they're going, God, does God really love us? Is he really accessible to us? And so there's going to be this daily routine and this yearly routine where they're going to make these band-aid sacrifices, just hoping it's enough to make things right before them and God. Just hoping and hoping. And then these prophets all of a sudden stop talking, and they have the Torah, the Old Testament. And then there's this period, very similar to the period between Genesis and Exodus, where it seems like God just goes quiet. Just quiet. They're going, does God still love us? So they're going through their monotonous routines. They're making their sacrifices. They're um, in their times of real pain. What it says is they're clinging. They literally are going and grabbing onto the horns of this, sac- this altar and going, God, God, would you be our refuge? In the back of their mind, they're wondering, does God really love us? Is he really going to fix this? What's the plan? What's the plan? This is the whole Old Testament. What's the plan? We think he loves us. We think he has a plan. He keeps saying that he's going to send someone, but he hasn't sent them yet. And so 40 days is a long time for Moses. Moses' people, could you imagine 400 years? Then all of a sudden, there's this murmur, this murmur happening. This is kind of the transition in the New Testament. We'll get to talk a lot about this next week. And there's this murmur, and all of a sudden, people are going, hey, we hear that there's this this guy sent by God, and they're like, we haven't heard from a prophet. Is this a prophet? Is this Elijah reincarnate? Is someone going to come? And then they, they start hearing this thing that maybe, maybe, maybe people are starting to refer to him as the word, the Messiah. They knew it from the Old Testament. Maybe there's someone that's actually going to show us how to get access to God. Maybe they're going to point to the right direction. Maybe they're going to help us understand this. Maybe they're going to at least take away all the political pressure so we can figure it out for ourselves. And then, so they hear these murmurs, and this kid his name's Jesus. He's from Nazareth. And when they hear that, they're going, no, no, it can't be him. He's from Nazareth. But there's this murmur. And they're going, maybe, maybe he can point the way. And then uh, Jesus' br- uh, cousin, his name's John the Baptist, shows up and he starts making this real declaration. Repent, repent, repent. Why? For the kingdom of God is near, or another way, at hand. And so they're going, you've got to change how you think. You've got to change how you've seen this whole thing. Because the kingdom of God is here, meaning God's presence has come to this earth. And you can access it. You can have access to that realm if you just change the way you think. And so the way that John tells us later, this is one of Jesus' buddy, how this played out. He actually refers to Jesus as the Word. You have to come back next week to hear why that's the case. Logos. And he's saying in the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God. And he was God. And he was the Word of God. Meaning we want to hear from God. And we want to know God. And so what John is telling us is the way that you hear God and know God is all in the person of Jesus. And they could not get it. They could not get it. And then John makes this statement talking about Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 14. And this is what he says. The word, meaning Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's a really, really bad translation, by the way. We don't use words like tabernacle anymore, but that dwelling is literally tabernacle. So the word that these Israelites would have known is the tabernacle. In this moment, John is making a declaration and going, the person you've been looking for, the God, has now brought his presence here. And guess where he's dwelling right now? In the tabernacle. He is the tabernacle. The way Eugene Peterson says it in the the translation of the message, he says, uh, God moved into the neighborhood, right? And so all of a sudden, John the Baptist and John are going, Jesus is showing up and he's moved in. So there's a different way to get the presence. Guys, you got to see the crazy nuances of this. Like for these guys, they'd have been like, okay, is this who we think he is? How does this work? Is he going to show us the way? And they're going, no, 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 no. He is the way. Like he's bringing his tent to your house. He's bringing it into your room. Like you don't have to go looking for it. He is literally bringing his presence to you. And they couldn't quite get it. In fact, what Jesus starts revealing over the next couple of years, he's telling people, hey, hey, the guy you've been looking for, God's son, that's me. I'm God. And all the Jewish leaders are like, he's got to shut up because we have this temple and we, have, we charge admission to get into the temple. And if he's saying he's the temple, then people aren't coming to pay admission and we can't pay for our mortgages. 
right? If he's saying he is the presence of God, then we don't have any business with the Holy of Holies and we're in trouble, so let's murder him. So these Jewish leaders, they literally arrest him and murder him, finally thinking, okay, if we can empty this, then we can go back to our, you know, our, our scheme of convincing them that they can kind of have access to God and they can pay us to get access to God and they can buy our lambs and pay the price of that. So they arrest him. They convince government leaders and create a, a critical mass, a tipping point where finally all humans think, yeah, how dare him say he's the presence of God. It's so arrogant. Let's murder him. So then they arrest him and they beat him and they strip him naked and they flog him to literally a, one more beat of his life and they put him up on the cross. And there's on this cross and there's another ominous scene where the clouds come in, but they're not the same clouds that you usually think of God's presence. These are dark, scary clouds. Let me read to you what happens. This is Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, uh, afternoon to three hours of this, guys, the whole world is just dark and ominous, and people are going, that doesn't feel like God's presence. About three in the afternoon, noon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. I'm not going to pretend to act like I can say that, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is really, really important here. Throughout the scriptures, Jesus teaches us how to pray, and every single time he starts his prayer with Father, except for this one. And this one, he's not his, he's not his dad's his kid. And this moment, Jesus is now, this is the, the big fancy word, you can handle propitiation, right? The, the, the substitute. He is literally absorbing all the sin in the world, and God is looking at him with the wrath and the anger of all the damage that's been done to our kids and to us by all the evil in the world, and God places all that on Jesus. And so in that moment, Jesus goes, God, you have turned your back on me. And yes, he has. He literally was, he was about to beat him, beat him and murder him for the sin of all the world. So he's going, remember, I am a just God and there is punishment to be paid for sin. And so here it all is. In this moment there, and, and Romans says it this way, that in that moment, Jesus becomes both just. He is a just God and justifier. And so he does this enigma. He does both. And this is what it says. Watch this. Um, and, and so in John 1, 14, it says that he is both grace and truth. And in that moment, he is both gracious. He is not making you pay the price that you can pay. He's taking on, and he's truth. He literally is pouring out his wrath on one person. And this is mind-blowing that Jesus becomes both in a moment. And that is why he's worthy to be worshipped. This is brilliant and oh so broken. This is incomprehensible right? This is inappropriate. This is, this is, this is nuts. This is desperate. And this is who God, God does both sides, all loving, all justice, all in one thing. Watch this. When some of those standing there heard it, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus um, to drink. You can go back and listen to last week's sermon if you want to know what that's about. It's devastating. The rest said, no, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to say him. Remember, some people are still murmuring, ah, this is another prophet speaking on behalf of God. We haven't heard from one of those in a while. Watch this, verse 50. Pay attention to this. And when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Jesus dies, guys. And then, here's the thing, here's the thing. All of human history points to this. This is not like, wow, he died. We all know it. We all know he dies. We all know he goes in a tomb. And we all know no one can find his body. Right? That's the works of Josephus. Those are secular works. We know all those things to be the case. This is not folklore, myth, or legend. It literally changed time for us. And so we know this moment. We know he's going to come back to life. But I want you to see what happens in this very specific moment. He dies. Verse 51. At that moment. Not a moment before. Not a moment after. Not next week. Not the week before. At that moment. I'm talking about concurrently. Immediately. Jesus dies. And you see what happens? In that big temple where they were charging a mission. Where God 
his presence that was just veiled because his heart was covered. In that moment, it says the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rock split. So in that moment, this whole curtain, this whole thing that was protecting the presence from God, from his people, all that comes wide open. This is so nuanced and so rich. And it says from top to bottom, I mean, no one else could have done this. This thing was massive. It was impossible for some human being to do this. Top to bottom. There's two things to notice there. That was God, but there's something even so much more beautiful than that. And the Jews would have understood this. Um, back in Leviticus laws, and Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 10, all the other laws we get from Moses, one of the things they tell you about is how to grieve, right? Frankly, we can learn a lot from this. We are terrible grievers. Somebody dies, we don't sit and deal with the pain and sorrow of it. We move on to the next thing. We move on to the next thing. We move on to the next thing. We escape. And so God in his graciousness taught people how to grieve. And part of that process of grie- uh, grieving, there's this one part called kariya or kriya, K-E-R-I-A. H. And it's what typically the dads did. Particularly they lost a son or the man and what they would do is in the middle of their pain they were actually instructed to do this. This was mandated. And they're screaming and they're crying and wailing. They would grab their robes and they would rip them from top to bottom in deep anguish. And the reason they do that is what they were doing is they're literally revealing their, their hearts to the people that were closest to them. In their grieving, this is being vulnerable. They're inviting other people into the pain. They're inviting other people into the connection. They're inviting other people to come into their presence. You see this? So in the middle of their grief, they're ripping open and finally they're going, here's my heart. I'm not as strong as I said I was. I'm in more pain than I said. I'm not that I'm saying that my God, but that's, that was the approach of the Jews. So when you see this moment, Jesus is dying, you see a grieving father. A grieving father who is finally, a thousand years people are going, God, we want to know your heart again. And it's been veiled. It's been covered. And in this moment, Jesus says, no, 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 God, you can trust them because you can trust me. And I will make them right before you by paying for the price. And in that moment, he breaks, he rips his clothes off. He pulls out his heart and he makes his heart fully available to us again. So this is so crazy. And all those things in that moment, what Jesus does is he dies to prove his love but to also make all things right before us. In other words, the whole purpose of the temple, no more purpose. You don't have to make the sacrifices. You don't have to go to a priest. You don't have to go do some penance. Literally, you can start walking and walk right to Jesus' feet, walk right to God's feet because Christ makes him fully available to you, fully available. What Jesus' death does is it makes God fully available. So you're going, okay, how do I access that other realm? You, you don't have to access it because God is bringing it. Right? Repent for the kingdom of God is near. So the crazy thing is, it's not something you have to go seek and find. It has some, it's something you just have to receive. Right? The beauty of the gospel is God doesn't require you to go looking for it. He actually brings it to you. So you want it. You want his access to him. You want God to fill you. Just go, Jesus, I believe you paid the price for that to be possible. Jesus, God, would you please fill me? I understand I don't deserve it. I understand I deserve all the punishment. But I see your goodness and your love. And I want your, I want your forgiveness. And I want access to you. I want access to you, and watch this, verse 52, and the tombs broke open, the bodies of many holy people who died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went to the holy city and appeared to many people. And so the band's gonna come up, and I just wanna point out this. So two really neat things happened in that moment. The first one is this, God gives you access to him, but then God shows you that this isn't a band-aid solution. He actually says, let me show you what happens as a result. And immediately he shows us what happens in dead people, defeat death. So in this moment, not only is God making himself available to you, he's showing you that there is an end to death. We started at the beginning of Genesis, four weeks ago going, the whole point that you've got to understand is God's goal was you and him forever. And so through what Jesus does to us, he makes himself available to you now 
and for all eternity. And guys, you can't write a better story than this. Like, there's no way you could create this. And so what I hope happens in the moment that you can just marvel at the goodness of who God is and be amazed at how he does this. And then too, this is really anything. We're going to sing the song. I'm going to sing a song, and it's called uh, Fill This Place. And I want you to understand, the song that we're talking about is not filling this place. You know, God will fill that. I'm talking about God wants to, f- he actually tells us that our body becomes a temple. He wants to fill us. So I challenge you, go, hey, God, God, would you do this? Now, here's a really neat thing. You're not quite ready for that, trying to figure it out, really, really struggling, just seeking some refuge. What I love about the Old Testament, the altars, is they would go and they'd, um, in, the, in the tabernacle, they'd hold on to the bullhorns, and they would go, God, would you be our refuge? Would you be our provision? Would you forgive us? And so maybe some of us need a literal altar to come lay on. And so I just want you to know, as we sing this song, if this is something you need, right down front, these are stairs. But it was a, we don't have the tabernacle anymore. So if you want to come and just sit before God and go, God, I just need your presence. God, I need your forgiveness. God, I need your grace and peace. I just want you to know this is available here. And one of the neat things is, as we sing this last song, we have some folks right here to my right who would be happy to come join you in prayer if that would be helpful for you. So would you stand with me as we sing this song? There is a love that 
Sing that out, lift your voices. And I will worship you. I'll worship you. I'll worship you always. So in Psalm 103, David says, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. And here's Here's the good news of the gospel is God pays all the consequences, all the consequences. Jesus pays all the consequences, and we get all the benefits. And the reality is most of our world doesn't know that. And boy, would love for our community to get that. And so there's some ways to do that. Um, this Wednesday, love for you to come back here, hang out with us at Cal, have a meal at 530, get into some Bible classes at 615. But then on Friday night, we're back in downtown Oxford, handing out hot apple cider and lemonade and inviting people into next weekend's worship service and inviting our community. And remember, it's fall. People are entering the stuff. And so the way that we're doing that, we're showing up at Oxford, be there from six to, you know, closing time, nine or whatever that time is. And we're inviting you to uh, wear a shirt can, next, uh, I mean, a shirt that talks about making it simple for people to connect uh, to Jesus and one another. Everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. Anything's possible, right? The CLC shirts. I want you to grab those. They're outside, out front there. And we have bumper stickers and uh, uh, magnets, all those things. So make sure to grab those things. I would love, 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 love for you to uh, come with us and hang out and invite some folks with us on Friday and then be considering ways to invite through the invite cards uh, throughout the week. And the last thing is there's still yard signs out there, guys. There's still yard signs. And um, I love seeing those pop up. Would you, would you grab one, please, pretty please, with sugar on top? Put it in your yard. Yesterday, Gary and I were, Pastor Gary and I were driving to denominational meetings, and we were seeing yard signs all over the place driving. And we were going, woo, woo. Next thing I know, like number seven, I look over, and Gary has his shirt off, and he's just swinging it over his head. <laughs> it was crazy. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's it. You guys have a great, great week. We'll see you Wednesday. <laughs>